0: Papasty podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Richard was shot and blinded by a British soldier in the early 70s during the troubles in Northern Ireland. You will hear how this propelled him to a life of compassion, helping others through his international NGO. The first part of the interview reflects on his experience through COVID and the pandemic, and then it goes on to his story in more detail around starting in Northern Ireland. Enjoy. guest is Richard Moore. Really pleased to have him as a guest. We've known each other now for almost a decade. Um, when I was at the St. James's Place Foundation, we supported, and we very pleased to do so, his charity called Children in the Crossfire. Um, Welcome to my podcast, Richard, and uh, thanks for connecting.
1: Thank you, uh, Mark. It's great to catch up with you after this sort of gap in time, and uh, and uh, obviously delighted to uh, participate. And thank you for asking me. Yeah, fantastic. Um, before we started recording, actually, we were just talking
0: about um, COVID, and I think it's probably a good place to start. Uh, you talked about being more grounded than normal uh, and, and you've been sort of, not stuck in Ireland would be the wrong thing, but <laughs> where, <laughs> where where have you been in, and kind of how you've been spending your time?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose uh, around the COVID scenario, um, it was, uh, you know, it was a sudden change. You know, like I was in America in February and uh, uh, doing Children in Crossfire stuff out in Chicago and that. And then, in March, I we found ourselves in a very sort of, over, I would say roughly a two to three week period, you know, beginning to sort of think, well, what's this COVID thing mean to us? Do we need to be careful about it? Going from that stage right through the, it looks as if we're going to have to think about closing the office uh, uh, and, and that type of thing. So, I mean, I, I spent a good percentage of the last few months working from home Um, You know, and uh, dealing with the impact of COVID on, you know, Children in Crossfire, the organization that I set up and and international NGO and um, so there was a a couple of sort of significant, um, I suppose, uh, challenges there around Children in Crossfire's work and also how we resource that work in terms of fundraising and stuff which we had to deal with in a very sort of very quick space of time. And then, um, you know, um, as well as that, dealing with the idea of being grounded as, as, as you know, we talked about already uh, offline and, uh, you know, this not being able to travel and, and not being able to even to come into your office working in a very sort of closed social circle. Um, and that, and I find that, Challenging. If somebody had have asked me at one stage, um, you know, could you ever work from home? I, I, my constant view was, God, I don't know how people do that. I don't know how people work from home. Exactly. I, 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 uh, I need to, um, you know, I need to get up in the morning and, yeah. and get out the uh, workplace. But I have to say, after a week or two, I did get used to it. Um, I had to build in regimes. You know, I had to do that. I had to get up and. On the treadmill every morning for you know thirty minutes, maybe forty-five minutes every day. I did that, and then it left me ready to have breakfast. Get sitting down at you know eight thirty a.m. At, at the laptop or whatever.
0: Sorry, don't know the you know, the history of CIC. That that you're actually um you're blind, aren't you? And you're blinded when you were ten by a British soldier. Uh, I had it down in sort of early seventies, nineteen seventy-two.
1: That's correct. Everything you did is accurate, uh, yeah. Mark. I, yeah. uh, I was born and lived in Derry, Northern Ireland, all my life, and uh, Derry uh, was at the centre of the the epicentre of the Northern Ireland conflict, really, um, back in uh, from the sixties right through. But particularly around nineteen seventy two, the conflict took. Uh, you know, a a more serious twist, but serious enough up to that. But then in Derry, in January 1972, we had uh, sadly a very well-known incident called Bloody Sunday where 13 innocent people were shot dead by the British Army on the streets of Derry during uh, a protest march. In fact, where I'm sitting now talking to you, I'm about six minutes' walk from that particular location where all that happened. I grew up in an area called the Craigan Estate, and the Craigan Estate was an area of social housing, like the Bogside, where Bloody Sunday happened, and they're all very close to each other, you know, and, um, d- you know, Derry is a small, compact city, you know, it's a, a nice city, but it's, you know, small, 120,000 people separated by a river through so the East Bank and the West Bank, The dairy, the, where I lived, the Craig Estate and the Bogside and all that, and where I am now is all situated on the West Bank of the River Foyle. And so it was an area of social housing, a lot of unemployment and all the relevant sort of social issues that would come with that. And then, you know, you had the conflict. So outside our front door, I mean, it, it felt and looked like, a war. You know, you had all the pavements were dug up and broken up, and the, the broken pavements were used either to throw missiles at the British Army or the police or to build barricades at the end of each street uh, to stop the army or the police from infiltrating the area easily. And uh, so you had these burnt out uh, trucks, burned out cars, all hijacked, put across the road, set on fire, and incorporated into barricades. So, uh, and Craigan became officially known as a no-go area. Uh, I went to the local primary school and the local primary school was right on the edge of this no-go area. Uh, And really what the no-go area meant was the British army or the police weren't welcome. So uh, for a period of time, the streets of our area were patrolled by the IRA. And um, shootings, bombings, riots were a daily occurrence. So, as I said, my school was on the edge of the an mm-hmm. And right mm-hmm. beside the school was a police station. And because it was on the edge of the then it was a target for the IRA, and it was a target for rioters on a daily basis. So you would have had shooting incidents there, bombing incidents down beside the school. And the British Army were eventually brought in to protect that police station. So you had these army military installations. We used to call them sandbag huts, but there were military huts, that the army were inside these huts, keeping a lookout to protect the police station. One of these army lookout posts was positioned at the bottom of the school, soccer pitch. And on the 4th of May, 1972, just about three months after Bloody Sunday, I got out of school as normal, and me and my friends started to race along the bottom of the school po- football pitch. And as you said earlier, I was 10 years old. And as I ran past this British Army Lookout post, I was 10 feet away from it, and a British soldier fired a rubber bullet. A rubber a rubber bullet hit me on the bridge of the nose. I lost my right eye and was permanently blinded on my left eye, so it was, I lost my sight immediately. So that's what happened that day. And do you have, Richard, do you have, do you you remember the pain? Do you remember
0: the sensation? Do you have memories of that day?
1: I have very vivid memories of that day, but what it's, it's a true saying, you know, when they say, first of all, you don't hear the bang and I didn't hear the bang. It was just milliseconds, you know? And the second thing is I don't, I didn't feel any pain. Although um, my nose was completely flattened, my eyeballs were out of their sockets and out of my cheekbones, and my face was just a bloody mess. For example, my music teacher, Mr. Giles Doherty, he heard the bang, he came over and he found me lying on the ground. And he lifted me and carried me into the school refectory and put me on the school refectory table. And uh, I was in his music class, he knew me very well but he wasn't able to identify me. Wow. You know, my face was yeah. completely yeah. and utterly really yeah. flat. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's how bad it was. You know, I was lucky to survive. I mean, survive parents, yeah. you know, I was very lucky to survive it. And your parents got to fail for
0: them. They had to, you know, be, well, yeah. they got a call. You got taken to them. They came to find you.
1: Yeah, I lived two minutes walk away from the school. So obviously somebody got word up to our house that I had been shot, and my daddy and my sister uh, came as I was being taken into the ambulance, and uh, uh, my daddy and my sister were sitting beside me, and I remember my daddy in the ambulance holding my hand, and I knew it was in an ambulance because I could hear the siren in the background, and I remember my daddy saying to me, you'll be okay, Richard, you'll be all right, you know? And I'm sure it was pretty perfect for him. My mother arrived on the scene just after they closed the ambulance doors. And my daddy asked the ambulance personnel not to let her into the ambulance. Because mm-hmm. he really didn't want her seeing me the way I was. And as well as that, my mother's brother, my uncle Jared, was shot dead on Bloody Sunday. So that was in January. And then I was blinded in me all by the British Army. <laughs> yeah. She was already... Yeah in a difficult place, you know? Incredible, um, yeah, incredible times
0: yeah. And, and harsh, incredibly harsh on your family. Um yeah. what, what, what was home like at that point? What They so had you, a loving, loving home and uh, yeah. the, the reco- the, they looked after you in your recovery? and.
1: Yeah, I had a brilliant family. I, I come from a family of 12 children and I was the second youngest. So there was nine boys and three girls in our house and um I think bar one of my sisters who had moved away to England, actually, the rest of us were all living at home. And, uh, you know, I would always say like people would ask me quite often, Mark, you know, um, you know, how I managed to deal with blindness and how I managed to sort of, you know, be so comfortable and content with blindness and stuff. And, you know, um, and, and, I've never had any anger or any hatred or anything like that. And the reason why is because of my family, uh, that love and compassion um, that I felt at home. That, I mean, they were the people that caught me when I was on free fall. They were the people that put me back on my feet and they made sure that the impact of blindness was as uh, minimal as possible. You know, but I'm sure for them, it must have been extremely difficult. They watch, you know, my daddy, my, my father was an unemployed shoemaker. My mother was what you would describe as a, a homemaker nowadays. And, you know, so their whole life was their children. My parents were two very devout Catholics. They went to Mass every day of their lives. They didn't support violence in any way. They were two very peaceful, passive, quiet, gentle individuals. And they just lived for their family, you know, and for them, they watched their 10-year-old boy grapple with blindness around the house, you know, having to walk around and trip over a shoe or walk into a half-open door or feeling the walls to kind of get me way about and get, you know, made the lay of the land and all that. And also just seeing me sitting on a sofa or a chair when I should be out playing football with the the, the rest of the guys that that I, that I did normally was a football fanatic. That must have ripped the heart out of them. I have no doubt about mm-hmm. it. I have two children of my own. And if they if they as much as scratch their knee, I feel it. Yeah. And for mommy yeah. and daddy, they watch that. You know, and I can remember going to bed at night just after I was shot, you know, when I was out at home. And my mother used to come up and kneel beside my bed and she thought I was sleeping. And she would start to say her prayers. And then she would break down and start to cry. And then the crying would get out of control. And she'd be saying things like, look at him, God. He's only a 10-year-old boy. Please give him back his eyesight. Please give him back his eyesight. And she wasn't saying it in the way that I'm saying it to you know, She was desperate. And my daddy, well, people tell me that the day that he came back from the hospital, after they told them that I was blind for life, he stood in the middle of the road and cried with a man out of our street. So the impact on them too, particularly was mm. enormous. It was huge, enormous, yeah. Enormous, how, did, but, Richard, how, did
0: they, how did they react? So in 2006, you went on and met the very soldier, um, I believe his name was Charles, who had yeah. shot, that, shot that rubber bullet that day. How, how, did, they, how did they react to that? And, and like, where were they on forgiveness?
1: Yeah, you know, um, you know, I never had any anger or any hatred towards a soldier. And I always wanted to meet him. For 33 years, I didn't even know his name. So there's this scenario, Mark, where, you know, when you peel everything back around my incident, you know, the most significant thing that happened to me in my life was being shot and blinded. The person I am, the personality that I grew up to have, my sort of tra- trajectory in life was you know was dictated by that incident. You know, any struggles I had, any positive things I had, in many ways were related to my blindness. And when you peel everything back, there are two people involved, me and the man that fired the bullet. Mm. So I felt we were in a relationship. In many ways that bullet connected us. Mm. And I never knew anything about him. Didn't know his name, didn't know his age. Knew nothing. And um, eventually, um, through various means, you know, when, when the peace process happened here and everything began to relax, then information became more available and a, a set of journalists were able to track the soldier down his name, Charles. But all during that period of time, I always said that I would love to meet the soldier. Now, where did that come from? Where did that sense of forgiveness and lack of anger come from? Mm-hmm. I think it came from my mommy and my daddy. Yeah. Sir. You know, I, there was a lot of tears, a lot of emotion, but there was never an angry word. And I can remember one time, one of my brothers, who was about 17 at the time, just after I was shot, and I, we lived in a small house, right? So I was sitting in the living room, and my mother spent her whole day in the kitchen. And my brother was out in the kitchen, a 17-year-old. And I heard him shouting at my mother. And he was saying there, in very colourful language that I won't use now, but he said there things like, you know, they blinded my uncle, Ru- or they, they murdered my uncle Jared. They blinded Richard. It's time to get my own back. You know? Mm-hmm. And my mother said to him, If you want to help Richard, go on there and help Richard. But you're not helping Richard by hurting somebody else. Yeah. So that was kind of... And my mother and them weren't... You know, they weren't... No, they um, they were just very passive, very quiet. Any messages that they gave us were by example, not by sitting down and telling us how to behave. You know, and all that notion of forgiveness and lack of anger, I got from them. Yeah. And you know, eventually, when Charles, the soldier, agreed to meet me, I remember the plan was made for me to go over on the 14th of January, 2006. And the day before, I met him on a Saturday, the day before it was a Friday. And my daddy died six years after I was shot. So 1978, my daddy died. So. Yeah. But I remember the Friday morning, I went to my daddy's grave. And I said, Daddy, look, I'm going to meet the soldier tomorrow, as you probably know, and I just hope that you're happy with what I'm doing. And then I went to see my mother in the afternoon. And I had keep I had been keeping her up to date, you know, with the progress in relation to the soldier anyway. But then, so, I went down that afternoon and I said, look, mommy, you know I'm going to meet the soldier tomorrow. And she said, yes, I do. And she said to me, will you be alright? And I said, I will. And I said, Mammy, you know, Someday I might bring the soldier back to Derry to meet you. And she said, Richard, if you're happy, I'm happy. Mm. And I honestly think, if she had a said at that moment in time, I don't think you should do this, then I wouldn't have done it. I couldn't yeah. have traumatised her. I couldn't have hurt her any more than what she'd been hurt over the years. And uh, And eventually... Two years of, of the following year, two thousand seven, I brought Charles over to meet my mummy as well.
0: Fun, yeah, oh, wow, that's incredible. And you
1: know, growing up at that time, and, and your
0: family being, um, you know, kind, compassionate, and, and sort of um, peaceful people, um, what was their take on the big divide between Catholic and Protestant? Did they did they interact with the Protestant community? Was there what was the, what was the kind of mood like in your
1: in your family around you know the divide? Yeah, well, my my family, I mean, the nature of Derry, where we grew up, Derry was, you know, predominantly nationalist city. And, um, the school, a Catholic school, you know, and that type of thing. So the, the opportunities actually, at growing grown up as a jailer or whatever, um, to meet a Protestant, wouldn't have been, you know, there. It was only maybe in later later life when you go to university or one day work in life that you began to meet people from the other religion, really. And um, so the city was divided by a river, but it was also divided uh, religious-wise as well. So the the West Bank of the Foil, where I was telling you earlier where I lived, where I grew, up, was probably 98% Catholic, nationalist. And the West Bank of the Foyle was majority uh, Protestant Unionist. And, you know, that was for security reasons as well. People didn't, you know, Protestant community didn't feel safe in such a predominantly nationalist area. And nationalists at that time wouldn't have moved to the watershed because they would have felt unsafe as well. So there was a natural demographic sort of shift there. But... No, I I mean when when I lost my sight, one of my best friends actually uh, I learned the guitar and I played in a band when I was 14 years of age and I was in a band with older men you know, uh, men much older than me in their 40s and that sort of thing and they they looked after me as if I was their son and one of the main guys in it was was a Protestant. Uh, So my parents wouldn't have advocated that at all, they would have been, you know, and and. and no, I'm sure that in their lives, through their working lives and other avenues they would have met people from across the faiths, but they, they definitely didn't. I didn't at that early days do it because just the area that I loved and grew up and socialised yeah. yeah. didn't have and that mix.
0: Yeah, you've you've definitely not uh, let your blindness hold you back. So, uh, I, you know, blues band, uh, I, I believe you ran a couple of pubs, you've won awards, You've you've written an autobiography, like it doesn't it doesn't hold you back Richard it? um and and not not to mention the charity you founded and, and have been running for 24 years um which I'm really keen to get into but but um so it's blues music what instrument do you play?
1: I am a lead guitarist I'm a lead guitar I play you know so and uh you know I, I um I, I learned to guitar just after I, I lost my sight and then uh you know, I found the guitar a fantastic outlet, you know, for me. Uh, I didn't think about it at the time, but looking back on it, it was it was obviously a social uh, a social outlet for me. I was going to the local youth centre and playing the guitar with all the guys, playing a couple of wee bands there. And then I sort of, you know, played pretty regularly then in a, a country, Western band for a while when I was younger. And then I, would, I, I ended up in kind of pop bands, local, like when I say playing covers around Ireland and then like a blues band then. Um I remember the movie, um you you remember yeah, the movie yeah, uh, the commitments. Well the the, the the sort of last band that I was in emerged out of the commitments. We 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 went to the movie and said, We want to do a band like that and and uh so we ended up with a whole brass section and rhythm section and uh sort of the um you know, just gig around Ireland and some gigs in the UK as well. And it was great. I loved it. And then I had a recording studio at home as well. I set up a recording studio uh in my garage and you know we used to do a lot of recording in there of different local artists work. as well. So and, and and of course me and my my wife then or my my girlfriend then, my wife now, um we set up a folk choir that sang at church every Saturday night. And, and oh, yeah, that's brilliant. 40 years yeah. on. We're still doing that. But we've, and so, but, yeah, when,
0: when we so, you know, Children in the in Crossfire is, is your charity. Um, uh, and you, so, as I said, yeah. founded it 24 years ago. Um, what, it's interesting because when I looked at your kind of vision, the, the charity vision, um, it's for a compassionate world. And that seems to be the overarching uh, focus theme for me. And, and that's clearly linked to your experience um that we've just talked about and just just tell me about how the
1: how the charity came about and it'd be good to hear that story yeah well basically um i i i suppose um the motivation for children in crossfire was my own experience in life i um when i come out i went to university got my degree but i was also compensated by the british government for being shot and with half the money I bought a house, and the other half, I invested in partnership with my brother in a pub, and and then two years later, I bought a second pub, uh, and and then when I come out of university, I there was a, a we had an office above one of the pubs, and I went straight in there, and began to run the pubs for about fourteen years, and and then some of my other family members then we all, we got together and invested in a small kind of property company you know buying properties and renting them out and things like that so then I ended up running that as well so I, I ended up managing the three companies for about 14 years but all during my self-employed life and my working life I kind of kept feeling myself being drawn towards uh, poverty issues and global poverty issues and there was like a, a social conscience being pricked in me all the time. And I spent a lot of my self-employed life fundraising for charities, for sort of helping charities set up itineraries and, and all that sort of stuff, coming to Derry and helping with events and things. And and I just really felt that, um, you know, that was where, what I wanted to do. And then in 1992, I went on a fundraising event to Mississippi, and, and it was a walk across Mississippi. a you know, way, a lot of these charities do these challenge events. Well, there was a 240-mile walk. Well, it was actually a 540-mile walk, uh, but the, I only done 240 mm-hmm. of it because I could only join it for two weeks. And we done that across the state of Mississippi and that. And it was all connected. I'm with the Choctaw Indians and how they helped the Irish famine away back in 1840 odds. And it was a kind of an Irish charity was going out to say thank you. But the money that we were raising from that was going to Somalia at the time. So anyway, I went out and done that walk. And uh, it was the first time that I had been away without my family, Um, two weeks walking is a great way of thinking and thinking about where you want to go in life and all that. And I was in my thirties at that, early thirties then. And um, I met this Irish priest there who worked in the Amazon uh, with Brazilian Indians. I met an an American nun who worked in the slums in Sao Paulo and all that. And for two weeks I've been walking with them, hearing their stories, and I was totally enthralled by it. I was totally hypnotised almost by, you know, the value of their work, really. So I made a decision. I remember sitting on a, on a pier at, um, overlooking Lake Teoketa in Mississippi. And I made a decision thinking, do you know what? I want to spend the rest of my life using my experience mm. maybe to do good. And I decided to sort of sell out the business and set up Children in Crossfire. And I suppose, really, I acknowledge the fact that the reason why I accepted blindness, the reason why blindness was such a positive experience for me, is because of the opportunities in my life. The the love and compassion that I was on the receiving end of so much from my family, from my friends, from the local community, from the wider community. all all of those combined, genuine compassion in my life um, made it possible for me not only to accept blindness, but to actually see blindness as a positive experience. And I began to think, you know, if I could just give back some of what I've received. Children, maybe... So, facing difficulties in their life. And it doesn't have to be, you know, as a result of conflict. People, children who are suffering from the injustice of poverty, they're given the right chance, could mm. grow and blossom. And uh, so that's why I, you know, sold out the business and uh, I set up Children at Crossfire. And Mark, I would always say, if there's a child alive today in Tanzania and Ethiopia where children in crossfire work, if there's a child having access to better facilities out there, it's not because of me. It's mm. not even because of children in crossfire. It's because uh-huh. of those people in my life that showed me real love and compassion. It's because of them yeah. that I set up children in crossfire. So- yeah, yeah. It, it reminds us of the role that we all play in everybody else's life. You know, um, you know, the people that helped me in those days would never have thought hmm. that their influence would result uh-huh. in a child in Ethiopia or Tanzania having access to the better facilities, getting access to food, water, medicine, education. They would have never dreamt they were just helping me, and they would have never dreamt of the influence and the impact that they had so that's why really I, I started children crossfire and that's why you know much of our work around educating the heart for example which is the work we do in Ireland is important to me and what one of the things that struck me is
0: one of your patrons, or you've got two patrons that I know of. One is um, Joanna Lumley, who I uh, love on screen. She's also a human rights activist. Um, and the other one which really always intrigued me yeah. um, was the Dalai Lama. So are you, have, you, have you sort of turned yeah. towards Buddhism or, t- yeah, tell me how that came about and, and what, what's that such an important part?
1: No, I have never. I haven't turned to Buddhism, and uh, you know. Uh, but um, I I met the Dalai Lama back in 2001, I think it was, and uh, and it was, it was because he was coming to dairy as part of a cross community sort of push and peace building push, and I was just asked to be on a committee that would organise the dairy side of the visit which was he wanted to meet a small group of victims and and at that point in time I knew I knew the Dalai Lama like everybody else knew the Dalai Lama you know this world figure and um, when he arrived you know I you know to cut a long story short you know I he talked about forgiveness and I never saw my story in the context of forgiveness until I heard him talk. And I realized what he was saying was actually how I feel. And I realized then I was actually experiencing forgiveness in my life. So I said then, I put my hand up, I was in the audience, and I put my hand up and I said, Your Holiness, look, uh, I just want you to know that you've just helped me understand what I've been experiencing in my life was forgiveness. So... What happened after that, I don't know what happened, because I ended up, um, the Dalai Lama was having lunch at the venue, and I ended up sitting beside him. I don't know who organised it, but I ended up having lunch beside the Dalai Lama. And we got talking, and then um, the sort of friendship, I suppose, evolved after that. And uh, he has come to Northern Ireland, and come to Ireland, and come to Derry, on a number of occasions now, my request, and I've also been idea. Yeah, because that's US, where he lives, and, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, Diana, yeah. So, I mean, but the Dalai Lama talks, and and you know, I'm like everybody else. I might be with him on stage, I might be sitting beside him on stage, but I'm listening to what he's saying. And back in 2011, when we I had him here over we down in Dublin, and he talked about you know, this need to focus on the education of the heart. And we've spent many centuries developing the human mind. And and that's fantastic, you know. And um, But he felt that to some degree we've, we've neglected developing the human heart. So all those feelings or, you know, things like compassion love, forgiveness, empathy. Those are things that you know. he was saying that we need to, mm-hmm. we need to nurture and develop. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and when you have the combination of the heart and the head, then that is yeah. the perfect combination. So you can either yeah. use your intelligence to do bad things, or you can use your intelligence to do good things. And that's yeah. where the heart plays its role. So, yeah. uh, and um, I suppose what we, what we have, the, the example that I've given you around, you know, people in my life, I was experiencing compassion. I was experiencing the education of the heart because of my blindness. People responded to me in a way that was compassionate, that was showing empathy and showing forgiveness and as a result of that, then children across fire emerge and the person yeah. I am has emerged and, and yeah. I think that um, it's, that's something that has infiltrated children across fire really so we have a we have an education program here in Ireland which your previous organization uh, have supported over many years and um, you know uh, the You know, that that program is involved in schools in Ireland uh, to get them not only to engage with global poverty, but also to engage with local issues uh, and international issues, not only in an intellectual way, but in a way that shows empathy and compassion. So if you think about it, Mark, you know, nobody really likes being at odds with anybody else. Nobody really likes an argument. Nobody really likes to fall out with people. Nobody likes hatred or discord, really. But the nature of life is that we do experience that. So if you really want to reconcile with somebody, then before you even reconcile with that person, I think you've got to reconcile in your own heart. Yeah. The rest will follow if necessary. But you can yeah. begin to find peace and reconciliation in your own heart. So whether it be on a personal level, whether it be at a family level or community level, or in a conflict situation like Northern Ireland. If we want to really if we want to really reconcile with the other side, then the first place it's got to start, I think, is in your own heart. So We've got to invest in young people. We've got to invest in developing that compassion and empathy that the Dalai Lama talks about. And you don't have to be a Buddhist to be like that. Every religion has forgiveness and empathy and compassion at their core. In fact, the Dalai Lama would argue that before even we had religion, And even animals possess compassion. If you look at how, you know, how animals treat their young, if you look at, uh, you know, whether it be sheep and lambs, whether it be birds in the bird's nest, or whether it be in Mm. nature, you can see very clearly how animals Mm -hmm. possess that natural compassion that's there. We have the intelligence to go with that. To be able to use it on a very positive and going back to, so you've you've sold the three businesses yeah. and um, you're
0: heading off on that charity journey. Yeah. Was that a was that a steep yeah. learning curve? Yeah.
1: Yes, it was. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a completely different sector. Um, you know, when you're in your own business, you're the be all and end all. You, what you say goes, and you have all sorts of. Business rules and business heads and making decisions and all of that. When you come to the charity sector, it's you know it's it's it's, it's a completely different uh, ball game in the sense that you know you're looking at strategies, you're looking at outcomes and results, and trying to understand you know how how best they do development, and you know um, what I've learnt about. But I didn't realise when I went in there. Like when I I was like everybody else, you know, I thought you just raise money and uh, you know, build a well or you know, send out a food package or whatever stupid sort of maybe not stupid but certainly naive, let's say, um sort of view of it. And when I got into it more, I began to realise, you know, it's it's about it's about restoring the dignity of people. It's about Empowering people, about giving people the power over their own lives. So when you go to a village in Africa, it's not just about saying, you know, here's a bag of food. It's about engaging that community and their needs, what they think their needs are. And listening to those communities and understanding the challenges and helping those people achieve what they want to achieve, uh, not what I want them to achieve, what they want to achieve. And I see an organization like Children in Crossfire helping build that capacity, helping people gain their own independence, their own pride, their own sense of community. And all they they need is the resources. If you look at where you live, Mark, in Auckland, or I look at Derry, and you look at community, you know, it's not about a bunch of Americans coming into Ireland or Australia and saying, hey, guy, we're going to build a swimming pool in the middle of your estate. Because maybe yeah. no, the last thing you need is a swimming pool. Yeah, but Really what these guys should come in and do is say, look, let, let's listen. What do you want to do? What is it you need? And let, let, can I help you achieve that? And try to understand that. And, you know, against the background of no schools, of no water, of no food, then, you know, we are at a very, very early stage. But, so, to me, it's like pouring water into a basin. And all the issues rise together. You know, the issues of poverty, the issues of no food, no water, no education, but also empowerment and decision. And that was a big thing for me. I never saw the sector... I was just naive. I didn't realise. Uh, you know, and then I suppose when you move away from a, a business mentality, mm-hmm. profit is what you talked about. You know, when you get mm-hmm. into the charity sector, you really shouldn't have one in your bank account at the end of the year. Other than maybe reserve to make sure that, you know, you can cover whatever you need to cover. Should you, you know, ever wind the company up or or wind the charity up or whatever, but you know to help you through maybe a, uh, you know a, a thin air sort of budget period where you're you're waiting for grants to come in or whatever, but whereas the business world you're geared towards, the more money you have in the bank then the more successful your business is. Whereas in the charity sector it's almost the opposite. You know it's it's it's, it's not about ultimately profit. It's about social benefit. It's about how yeah. you've improved the lives of people. And that's the and measure. How it. do you
0: deal with, as a founder and someone who's really mission-driven, how do you deal with the professionals of, of charity when you had to
1: hire people for the first time? Hey, it, it, is a, it, is a, it is a thing that, the, um, you know, I'm always very conscious of the founder sort of, Mentality in a charity, and you know, and what I realized that it's not about me, it's not about what I want, and I've become very much a cog and a wheel. I have my role to play within Children in Crossfire, but yes, I mean, you know, I think one of the true signs of leadership is that um, that you can walk away. And the thing that you're involved in, that you set up, will still survive. It doesn't rely on you. I mean, everybody has a role they play in whatever company or organization that they end up working in. Of course, you wouldn't be there unless you have a, a gap they fill. But, and, and I believe I play my part. But I also believe that it's very important that you build an organization that's not centered around you. Uh, and that can quite easily survive without you. We always use the expression here, you know, what would happen mm. if you were hit by a bus tomorrow? And, uh, you know, and the reality is that there was a time, maybe in the early days, the Children Crossfire very much depended on me. It was a, a one-man show because I didn't get the, the resources or the, 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 the people in the organisation. That's completely changed. You know, we have... We have our fundraising department, we have our education department, we have our finance department, we have our international programs department, and we, you know, we have an office in Tanzania that run the Tanzania program, and we're looking now at, we've been in Ethiopia for many, many years, maybe 10 or 15 years, but we're only now beginning to think about an office here because the resources are becoming available to hopefully do that, and um, so, and it's all run by various department heads and things like that, that are experienced and skilled, you know, and really, if if I'm doing my job right, then there should be people in here who know more than I do. Uh, and they do. There are people in here who know more than I do. And that's, I believe, the way it should be. Um, it should not rely on my knowledge. I can't be good at everything. But I think I can be good at making sure the right people are on the right seats yeah. at the right time to take the organization forward. Yeah. And again, it's not about growing an organization. Like we don't have a growth plan. We have an increased impact plan. So if we're not increasing our impact in for those vulnerable communities, the people we exist to serve, then to me it's not it's self-serving. So we've got to make sure that whatever we do it's not about growing an organization obviously the resources of the organization need to grow to ensure that we're able to deliver and the other thing that you know you know the charity sector is so highly regulated and the level of oversight the level of reporting the level of accountability is enormous and you know and it, it increases every year and it's good It's good in a way, but that comes with a challenge that you need to get the right people and the right resources in place so that when we look at our increased impact plan in terms of, you know, we want to reach more regions in Ethiopia or more regions in Tanzania, we want to make sure more children have access to preschool education or whatever, or more trained teachers, you know, but you want to do that in a way that's accountable. You want to do that in a way that's safe you know, uh, in terms of access to children and all that sort of stuff, then you have to make sure that the organisation has the resources and the personnel to do that. And that can be challenging. Uh, That can be challenging because, you know, as you know, um, finding the the money to, to be able to meet that demand can be challenging because not everybody likes to fund say, the administration costs of an organization. But, you know, when you get to an organization our size, we're a £2 million organization this year, let's say. You know, when you get to that size, you know, you have to. The donors, whether it be the British government or the Irish government or whether it be big trusts and foundations, they expect you to be able to produce high-level results, high-level reports, and they have the level of oversight uh, that... That is required, and to do that, yeah. you need. And the tell me about attracting government
0: money, aid money. How did you how did you pull off?
1: I, I mean, um, I, I think that um, you know, in Ireland, initially, um, the Irish government through their overseas aid program, Irish Aid, were you know, had a, uh, they're a great organization. They really are. They're tough and they are tough, uh, but they are, you know, very open in terms of conversations. They are very open in terms of uh, supporting you, uh, and they give you good constructive criticism, but they expect you to respond to it. And, you know, so I think Ireland has a great ethos in terms of having a genuine concern for people in other parts of the world. In the early days and talking about, and, and so Irish Aid were very willing to support Children in Crossfire and what we were trying to achieve. So you go on at a very basic level, you know, and then you build up the trust and the capacity and the ability. And, you know, Irish Aid have supported Children in Crossfire every step of the way, and, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But so it was really um, a situation where they they supported us small. We responded hopefully in a way that they thought was good, and then gradually we rose up the ranks of um, you know funding uh, to the point where we're on the what they call the program fund, which is you know fantastic for us. And then you know the British government recently have you know supported us in their um, through uh, their UK aid program, which again is the overseas element of the of, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs. And, uh, you know, they, they like what we do in Tanzania in our early childhood education program, and they decided to support that. But, you know, funds are hard to get, money is, you know, is finite, and you have to be able to submit high quality programs in, a, in an area where they feel that they like to fund. So you're trying to sort of meet various tick boxes and then you're into whether the program is good enough or not. And to we we have managed to secure uh, money from them as well. But, you know, I never take it for granted. And if you're not successful, it's not always because you're bad at what you do. In fact, I would say it's not that at all for a lot of organizations. It's because... You just didn't meet where yeah. they were Which at, Clearly but,
0: shows your evolution. What, yeah. what would you say to a young well, Richard Moore? You know, going back to well, starting the charity. What, what would be the lessons? Um, just you come out of those two businesses. What would you say to a young Richard? Well, I mean, uh, uh,
1: well, I would say that you know, it's it's. Um, it's okay to follow follow your dreams. It's okay to, to really believe in something and go after it. And I would encourage that. I mean, I was self-employed. I had my own business. But was I getting satisfaction? And I didn't feel satisfied in my own business. So I, I went where my heart and my mind was directing me. And... I would say to any young person, look, if you feel like that, go for it. Uh, I would also say to any young person, whatever you go for, whether it be in the business world or whether it be in the charity sector or something else, never lose that sense of compassion. Never lose that sense of where your role in the work, uh, and you know, and I think that that is something that we all need to embellish and develop and be sensitive to, But do nothing without a plan, really. You know, you have to think things out. Nothing happens without a plan. And you can take your risks and take your chances and blindly go forward, but let's be honest. You wouldn't decide to go on a car journey unless you knew where you were going, unless you put the relevant apparatus in place. Can you imagine like the length and breadth of Australia, for example, and somebody deciding, you know, um, I'm just going to go from the north of Australia to the south of Australia and without making other plans, what they need, where, they, where they're where they going to stay, what they need in the car and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it sounds like simple stuff, but you need that in terms of deciding where you're going as well. Set yourself goals. I mean, and, and you know, I set... My goal to set up a children's charity. Now I'm not going to pretend that I thought I knew that I would be doing it 24 years later. I'm not going to pretend that I thought it would grow the way it is growing. But I knew that it was going to grow. And I knew that I needed the support of others. I knew what systems I needed to put in place. For example, a board of directors, people who had knowledge and experience that I didn't have, you know. And, and I've needed that throughout the whole evolution of Children in Crossfire. Like I said earlier, don't be afraid of people that know better than you. Harness them. You, you, utilize that resource. And by doing that, you empower other people as well. Because ultimately, you need people for things to happen. And, you know, if you can find the right people and empower those people, encourage those people, then I think that you will... You know, benefit or arm and say, and you will make mistakes. But you know, there's an old phrase. I don't know if you heard it before, Mark. Rough seas make good captains. And you know, the reality is, if everything is smooth and fine and dandy, then you're really not learning that much. Whereas when you meet the challenges, those are the things that will, that will test you, and those are the that those are the things that you'll learn from, and be open to learning. And be open to accepting your mistakes and i think as long as you learn from those mistakes and and turn it around then you know uh, then i think that you know that that makes you better and makes what you're doing better yeah hopefully that's helpful you know that's
0: my very much absolute pleasure and um it'd be good to stay connected and appreciate your time tonight
1: yeah what i should say mark just before i let you go in, in relation to blindness, that's an example of how you need to navigate around the obstacles. So if I focus on what I can't do in my life, then I'm always going to be frustrated. I can't play football. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be an electrician. You know, I'm not going to be a cab driver. And if I spend my life wanting to be those things, then I'm going to spend my life being unhappy and frustrated. So what I think the lesson in that for me is, yeah. look, accept your limitations. Yeah. Accept the things that you can't change. Because it's only when you do that that you begin to figure out a way to get right now. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean,
0: we... So, great right, advice right. and... and um, Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.